Oh, are you a saber-toothed tiger cub? Are you my baby Wolverine? Are you the princess of Meowtown? Are you just a melting snowman? Are you just a sloth? Because you're a little unicorn kitty cat. Are you my magical pegasus? Do you want to write some songs? Welcome to Peak Show, where you'll do things bigger than dating the boy on the football team. I'm your host, Bree Rohde, who would have made such a lovely bride. What a shame she's fucked in the head. Who is here with me today? Hi, I'm Alameen Abdul Mahmoud. I am the driver of your getaway car. That's me. <laughs> Welcome, driver of my getaway car. And uh, today... We're doing our first musician episode of season two. Uh, last year, we did episodes on Radiohead and Arkells. And I'm going to admit this now. They were some of our least listened to episodes of the season, <laughs> um, which I think is also because, frankly, uh, Arkells do not have an audience outside of Canada, no matter what any of us want to think. Um, but so why am I doing this again? Well, because it's my damn podcast. Um, and also... <laughs> I think I just need an artist who frankly has more universal appeal. And I say this unironically, this artist has just as much to analyze and just as much to dissect and respect as Radiohead. Today, you're joining me to talk about my one and only Taylor Allison Swift. Miss Taylor um, Allison Swift. I'm so excited. Let's do uh, it. It's going to be a I'm ride. so excited to have you on because you. you are a culture writer, you are a podcast host, and you're a certified Swifty. And uh, you write all sorts of things. We're going to get into what you've written about Taylor specifically. Um, and... I was wondering if you could tell me about some of your favorite like Taylor topics that you've covered over the last couple of years. So I'm a part-time culture writer, part-time podcast host. I'm a full-time Swifty. That's my only full-time job as an adaptation. <laughs> That's the only thing that there is. Um, favorite Taylor topics. I think like there's something about Taylor Swift that activates people's interest in the pop star machinery, specifically mm -hmm. about the question of whether they have any agency or not. And I love mm -hmm. and adore to just like, get in it with someone who's like she's really manufactured i'm like you don't know you don't know the kind of thing she's had to go through to create this mm -hmm. arc for her career for herself and the fact that there is a narrative out there about her is something that she's been combating for a long time so anyway like i just love to get to get into i'm not gonna call them fights because they're not always fights but just like very passionate conversations about our understandings of taylor swift yeah and i so we'll get into this a little deeper, but I am what people like I've been referred to by some people as like a secret Swifty or a stealth Swifty because I'm not uh, this sounds a little not like other girlsy, but I'm not the type of person that people expect to be into Taylor Swift because I am historically have always been much more into alternative music, you know, dad mm -hmm. rock, like we were saying off mic, love the dad rock. I love punk and, you know, like crust punk stuff. But um it's been in the last several years that Taylor Swift has really become just um, a comfort artist for me almost. And um, part of the that. reason I part of the reason I avoided getting into Taylor Swift had nothing to do with her music because I love all genres of music and everything to do with there's a lot of discourse around her and a lot of discourse baggage around her. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like we're talking about this because I'm finally ready. 
<laughs> Welcome. I will tell you that this Yay. is a safe space for you to admit wherever you jumped on the Taylor bandwagon. But I would just be careful out there in the broader world where you tell Swifties <laughs> you jumped on because, like, we know. We know the kind of person who came on board when 1989 came came out, the kind of person who came on board um, when uh, Folklore came out. And, like, it, it, there are types. It's like, oh, so this was the Taylor respectability album to you? We give, we give a side eye to that. We're like, no, no, no. We've been here since the start. <laughs> and she didn't have to earn it. She didn't have to like start creating, you know, music with the national in order to win our respect. We've been here since day one. Like, I think like, so just be be careful who you tell when yeah. you onboarded the Taylor, the good ship Taylor Swift. If my $30 glasses weren't an indication, though, I am uh, someone who jumped in fully uh, with folklore. Um, that's it. I did actually always like her music from a certain from a certain point on. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, like that was, I think for some people that had to be their way in. And that had to be my way in, but it really was a beautiful way in because I realized that there were some of her earlier albums that I actually was just like, Wow, I I finally really get this and really love it. So, now you you are a full time Swifty, isn't that fun? But I would love to hear a little bit about what you do besides that, specifically because you just wrote a memoir. What an exciting time in your life! So, can you tell me a little bit about Son of Elsewhere and kind of your journey with pitching it, writing it, and also where we can find it because it is coming out soon. Yeah, um, I'd be delighted to listen. Son of Elsewhere comes out May eighteenth. It's a memoir that I've been working on for what feels like way too long, but really it's only been like two and a half, maybe three years or so. Um, And it's been a journey of trying to maybe come to grips with some of parts of my identity that I just haven't spent enough time paying attention to. So the the way that I sort of tell the origin story of this book is that um, I came to Canada when I was 12. I came from Sudan um, and I didn't really speak English. And I came to a town called Kingston, Ontario, two hours, two and a half hours east of of, of Toronto. Um, And as a way of having to blend in to Kingston, I sort of had to put a bunch of my identities in a bucket. You know, um, I had to put my black identity in a bucket, my immigrant identity in a bucket, um, my Muslim identity, just like just somewhere else, because I needed to learn to blend in. I need to sort of like learn to figure out how to move without attracting a lot of attention to the fact that I wasn't from here because 12 is a particularly challenging age to, age to come here. Um, and what this book is, is essentially a, a return to all of those identities um, that I don't think I spent a lot of time with because I carried them with me this whole time, but I've not been paying a lot of attention. I've been sort of giving enough care to them. And so this book is an attempt to reconcile that. Uh, Mm. It uh, is mostly through the lens of pop culture, um, through sort of revisiting a lot of the big pop culture moments that shaped my understanding um, of who I am. So we dip into the OC. Um, we dip into the music that I listened to when I first got to Canada, which is mostly um, new metal music. Um, we dip into my love of country music. Um, we dip into wrestling. I was a big fan of wrestling for like two and a half years. That was a thing. Um, and hopefully through all of that, a cohesive narrative of the things we have to do to put away parts of ourselves and the things we have to do to get those parts to come out again. That sounds amazing. I'm Thank just you. like beaming hearing about it. Um, that's, I mean, uh, speaking as a pasty white dork who was like, I mean, my my ancestors have been in this country since it was New France, so that's that's wow. bad for other reasons. That's a long history. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I mean, and my husband is an immigrant, but he is a white immigrant who came here from England to a primarily 
English and Scottish town, actually. Mm. Like, his town was full of English, like, UK expats. And so was, we were recently talking about how he's like, yeah, it's crazy that I am an immigrant who came here at, like, elementary school age and do not consider myself to have had the immigrant experience, which, um, you know, just says a lot about the way we other people based on, you know, various other things such as accent, skin color, and then you get told, like, oh, like, you like wrestling. That's such a white thing. Yeah. Yeah. You have to deal with that shitty baggage. But so so were all the things with other things I was into, you know? Like the music that yeah. I listened to was sort of, sort of similarly in the same um, kind of vein. Um, I think like I, I, I talked a little bit in the book about somehow finding myself becoming every white dad's favorite person in the room. And I think like it was like that energy. Mm. And, but it was so protective for me because it meant that yeah. I would not have to go through a lot of difficult things that I otherwise would have had to go through. I think a lot about the mm. fact that, you know, my parents, my dad moved to Kingston. God bless his heart. Um, it meant that I, when I learned English, I learned it without an accent or at least like with the accent of sort of native speakers in Kingston um, mm -hmm. and the ways that that has also shielded me for a bunch of different different things. And so I've, I've been given a lot through that, but I've also a lot was taken away. And like this book is an attempt to be like, okay, let's balance some of these skills. Can't wait to read it. Thank you. So obviously you're comfortable telling stories about yourself. So peak show tradition is we have people share a moment that has peaked them. And I'll say that the gold standard was sent by set by friend of the show, Mint, because you mentioned the OC and Mint, uh, their peak moment was drunkenly giving kind of a little mini lecture on the various relationship and storyline intricacies of the OC. <laughs> so that's our gold standard. But I was wondering if you could tell us about your uh, peak element moments. I guess I would say um, that the one that popped to mind is like, I'm 16 years old. I'm going to my very first concert ever. And it's a disturbed concert. Disturbed music as a weapon tour too, you know? Um... And uh, I, I'm with my mom who insisted that she comes to the show because she's like, I don't trust wherever <laughs> you're going, which was... She was down with the sickness? Uh, I would not say she was down. I think she was like very confused as to like why the mosh pits are happening, et cetera, you know? Um, but before the show, I remember, you know, just hearing this bass line coming out of the venue while we were like walking around outside the venue looking for food. And I remember hearing the this bass line for a song. I'm like, I know what song this is. This must be soundcheck. And I sort of just darted into the venue while my mom was like, what the hell are you doing? Um, and I sort of just randomly found myself in the middle of the soundcheck where the Disturbed were doing. Um, and they were like signing autographs. And then I looked at David Draymond, the lead singer of Disturbed. And I was so starstruck <laughs> by the fact that he was looking at me. And he started walking towards me because I, I think he thought I was like a fan who was there to have something signed. And then I ran away. I immediately ran away. I was like, no, 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 I can't stay here. I'm sorry. I apologize. And then I exited the building promptly. And it was a, it was a great time. That is really sweet. Yeah, um, I, I was yeah. terrified. I was like, what's happening? I got to get out of here. It was great. That sounds kind of like this kind of thing that I would do at 16. And like, you want to tell people that it has a really cool ending of like, then I met him and he gave me a hug or whatever. Yeah. And it's sometimes your impulses are are what defines the moment more. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly that. So with the show, we always start with the history of who we're talking about. But before we do the history, we like to talk about our history. So I want to start by you telling me about your history with Taylor Swift how you got into her, what your kind of journey along with her career has been like. I mean, I would say that the first 
Taylor Swift song I remember hearing was Teardrops on My Guitar. Um, mm-hmm. So like 2007, maybe? Like this is like second year university or so. Um, I don't remember being particularly wowed by it. By it. I remember, you know, mm-hmm. hearing a song and being like, oh, there goes a pop song that is with some country twinges. Um, but I don't like remember having a strong reaction to it. It wasn't until a couple of years later, it wasn't until Speak Now, that I think I had the strongest reactions. And it's still my favorite Taylor Swift album to this day. Um, that uh, I sort of was like, okay, I got to go back. And I went back and listened to Fearless, all the Fearless, not just the songs that, of course, I'd heard by then um, because mm-hmm. Fearless was such a big album. And it's stacked. Yeah, it's it's back to back, back to back, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then listen to All the Speak Now and then kind of coming along for the ride from that point on. Um, it's been, it's you know, it's been a joyful one to be a Taylor Swift fan because you get a chance to sort of tell all these stories in a deep way. Um, you, there's something about Taylor Swift fandom that also turns you a little bit into like a historian. Like you gotta be like, well, you gotta understand mm-hmm. the socioeconomic forces that were going on at the time would have dictated this or this <laughs> other thing. Um, and I think that's like, I think that's half the fun of being a Taylor Swift fan. Very much. And as a person who has a degree in cultural studies, like one of the things that I learned in like my 100 level courses is that like, I think a lot of us who were music snobs growing up, which I was absolutely a music snob growing up, like very classically trained. And then, you know, you get in, like, you got to go through your Radiohead phase and stuff. Like, you think that there are only certain genres and certain types of music that is worth analyzing. And I will say that that attitude is always very, very gendered. Yep. And it is also very, very uh, slanted toward white artists. Um, You know, I when I finally did cultural studies of music, I was expecting like, oh, right. I can't wait to talk about... um, you know, how cool it is that this band uses a 5-4 time signature. And (laughs) what it really is, is on the first day, my very, like, angry chain-smoking prof pointing out that, did you know that most American punk uh, has the same drumbeat as most country, and country shares more in common with punk than anything else? And, um, like kind of forcing myself to admit like, oh, crap, the genre I hate is like the genre I like. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, so I think if yes. you were to go back chronologically, I, like you, probably heard Teardrops on my guitar first. I actually have a weird, distinct like memory of hearing it in the drugstore near like the clothing store where I used to work in high school, but I was not aware of who sang the song or even what the name of it was. Yeah. Um, I am, I think... We're close in age. I was born, like like the Queen, I was born in 1989. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I know that I heard songs from that first album, um, but the first time I became aware of her as a singer in earnest was in 2009. I was yes. 19, or about to turn 20, first year university. My roommate Jess would take extremely long showers at night, and she would listen to Love Story on repeat. <laughs> for a half hour at a time and not just <laughs> once every night right outside my door <laughs> it was a bold choice yeah. and i also like i, was I like, couldn't what was going on with understand the words oh my god oh like she was she was a very nice and otherwise very normal girl but i'm just like do you know other songs <laughs> um so and that 2009 was also the year uh that 
I think everyone suddenly knew who Taylor Swift was because of an incident we'll get into later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't super into her music at the time. I didn't hate it, but it, country was not my thing. Country pop especially was not my thing because I grew up in Timmins, which is where Shania Twain is from. And that was like saturated. And um, I think a lot of people think that like, growing up where I'm from or even like where I live now in rural southwestern Ontario I think they think we all just like listen to that country like radio country and you know wear our little forever 21 cowboy hats and it's like no (laughs) it's hacking darts in the Tim Hortons parking lot having Timmy's tailgates and you know listening to old-time rock and roll (laughs) so you know what hold on though can we just hold on this for a minute because Mm -hmm. there's like a mo there's like a way of speaking that was i think prevalent then i'm not sure it's prevalent now because i'm a big country music person now but i was definitely a participant (laughs) and like when people would be like hey what do you listen to like my answer was literally everything but country like that was sort of the answer oh yeah and that was like a really popular answer that was like or everything but country and rap Yeah. yeah like that's how you pass the vibe check is when you say that and it's like that woof i can't believe that we were the kind of people who did that you know and and again, like the not like other girls thing to do, if you did admit you like country, it's like, well, I like some country, but I like like Johnny Cash. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> I can't believe I used to do that. Like, yeah, I like, like um, old but classic yeah, so, country, man. I'm a Waylon Jennings mm-hmm. kind of person. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. So I was like fairly unaware of everything she did because I just had no interest except the singles. I heard the singles and... I didn't hate them, but it was very much, this is not for me. Um, Like, I never heard the song Sparks Fly until COVID. Um, I know, right? And now it's one of my favorite songs. Um, So it wasn't until the release of Red, which is when her stuff got more danceable. And because I am a dance teacher, I did start adding her stuff into my class playlist. And I started thinking, like, why does everyone make fun of Taylor Swift so much? Like, I think this is very nice music. Like, Mm -hmm. um... And, like, Taylor Swift became, like, the one artist I had in common with my mom. Oh, Um, that's nice. Yeah. Actually, no, my mom also really likes Lady Gaga. So, like, my mom, she loves pop. Um, And so, like, it was a thing of, like, if she was listening to Taylor Swift in the car, I wouldn't be like, can we please just change the station? (laughs) So, yeah. Um, But, again, part of the reason I never dove face first into her was because so much discourse on both sides I'll say like on both the fandom and very much the anti-Taylor Swift side and it was from political perspectives from um, personal musical perspectives and I'm just like I don't want to engage in this and Mm -hmm. um, I still fully believe that if you're in a position where you're starting online fights about something you like that that's not a healthy way to engage with (laughs) fandom or pop culture agreed agreed (laughs) you know that shouldn't be a hot take Um, but yeah so folklore happened i don't even know why i gave it a listen like i wasn't a person who waited around for taylor swift album drops but like it was COVID. i did a lot of things that i never thought i'd do i bought rollerblades like i i I was taking a lot of walks I, I was making kombucha and i was like you know what this is something I need for my meandering terror walk yeah. of the day. Yes, that my government-mandated walk. I know, it was wild. <laughs> it, it was, um, but wow, like what a what a good thing. Um, like it was 
just such a wonderful start to finish album. And when I started to really appreciate Taylor Swift for more than just her singles and um, actually read more proper reviews of her stuff. So Mm -hmm. I was more than ready for Evermore because folklore was so special to me. And now like I still am not quite the Taylor Swift historian, but like there's something off of besides maybe her first album, just because genre wise is still too far out of what I like. But um, there's stuff out of every album that like, there's a Taylor Swift song for every version of Brie. You know? Yeah. There's a, if you're out there and you're listening and you're skeptical, there's a Taylor song for you. We're going to convert you by the end of this. Absolutely. Yeah. So Brie, Brie charmingly paraphrasing Wikipedia here. Um, <laughs> but man, her, again, her Wikipedia entry is more stacked than the Radiohead entry. So suck on that, Tom York. Oh, I love, I love Radiohead, if I've not made that clear. Um, this is safe space. You can, you can question the Radiohead supremacy in this space. It's fine. <laughs> yes. So born in West Reading, Pennsylvania on December 23rd, 1989. Uh-oh, year of the snake. What is that even? <laughs> Um, Taylor Allison Swift, daughter of a Merrill Lynch stockbroker and former marketing executive, and I don't think it downplays her success to acknowledge that she grew up with considerable means. Yes. Um, it's, it's just a fact. This is how pretty much any singer these days is able to have the means to become and, famous and get and you opportunities. And you should be critical of it because like she has, yeah. I think in later years, tried to reposition her upbringing a little bit. I was like, mm-hmm. hey, I just grew up on a farm. And it's like, that's not quite the whole story. There's like, there's a sort of a larger story before that story. I'm like, you know, fans, to, I think to be a fan is to criticize and to say, I Absolutely. love you, but. Um, and that is mm-hmm. that is one of the I love you buts of, of Taylor Swift's career. Yes, and she was raised on a Christmas tree farm, which I think is very cute. It's so cute. Uh, in, yeah, in Wyoming, Pennsylvania, um, and began displaying an interest in music at around age nine, began traveling to Nashville with her mother as a tween in an attempt to be discovered through demos, and learned to play guitar at the age of 12. That's also when I started learning to play guitar, and I'm still not good, so that's just <laughs> a fun fact about me. <laughs> um, so from there, she began writing original songs. She signed with her first talent agency at 13 and got a boost from both an Abercrombie Rising Stars campaign as well as a Maybelline compilation CD. This is this is where I say that, you know, having wealthy parents certainly didn't hurt um, yeah, because right. it's especially when you're in like that genre, like that teen genre, because that's a very saturated market and it really is a matter of knowing the right people and stuff. And also the fact that her family was able to relocate full-time to Nashville, um, which is where she began working with various songwriters uh, to refine her catalog. It was at the age of 15 that she connected with Scott Barchetta, who signed her to his then-startup label of Big Machine Records. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So under Big Machine, she refers to her her first self-titled album. Um, It's the only album that didn't reach number one on the U.S. charts. It peaked at number five and sold just under 5.8 million copies domestically. Um, I couldn't find worldwide uh, sales for her albums, but that's it kind of her album sales are all over the place. And it is a little hard to use album sales the further down her catalog you go because 
people went from buying real albums to buying digital albums to not really buying them at all. Which she so. railed, she tried to, you know, she railed against for a moment, right? Like for, for a bit, her music yeah. wasn't available on Spotify. Um, we know that like f- through a lot of different sources, we sort of know that she really has this target of like the first week that an album comes out, she really like wants to sell a million copies that week. Like in many ways, she's really been shaped by that sort of 2005, 2006-ish arena of, you know, how you yeah. sell music. So that's still an element of how how she thinks about herself, I think. Mm-hmm. So 2008 saw the release of Fearless. So uh, lo- I think there was five singles off that album, including You Belong With Me, Fearless, mm-hmm. Love Story. Um, this is her peak in terms of sales. 12 million copies worldwide. Incredible. Peaked at uh, number one on US charts. So yeah, summer 2009, MTV Music Video Award. She was famously interrupted by Kanye West during her acceptance speech. So Um, I just want to talk a little bit about this ensuing legacy, and I'll preface this by saying I am uncomfortable with pretty much any topic surrounding Kanye West Mm -hmm. because as a person who has bipolar disorder, I, you know, and I talk a lot about being bipolar on this podcast, I hesitate to say anything that further stigmatizes it. And a lot of, and also a lot of people with mental illness will say, oh, it's not right to play hurtful things off as being a result of mental illness. Um, Mm -hmm. I have more complex feelings about this because the fact is sometimes, especially with bipolar, when you lack that impulse control, you do end up saying and doing hurtful things. Um, There is also a concern though, some have pointed out about the characterization of like scary black man versus innocent white woman. Um, And then of course, like, Currently, we're in the midst of Kanye just being off the walls, incredibly uncomfortable to talk about. But I do yeah. want to just focus on like that incident. Ultimately, the scale and coverage of that is so awkward and unforgettable. Like, mm-hmm. I, she might have been famous. She was a teenager, you know, or yeah, she was nineteen. Yeah. That's she was nineteen. Yeah, and. It was kind of like the first real incident of what would become kind of a theme, I think, in Taylor Swift's career of her um, her autonomy kind of being undermined quite a bit. And just like even the way like Beyonce so graciously gave her the mic after, it's a weird thing of like her always kind of being at the behest of other people's impulses. I think that there's a real sense to, you know, there's no way where you, if, when we were watching in 2009, that moment, there's no way I think we would have known that these artists would be the artists to define music in a decade, um, both mm-hmm. in their own ways and the ways that they sort of release music and the ways they that they relate to their fans. Um, they ended up becoming like the central artists of pop music of our time. Um, so it's, you know, it's the fact that it kind of set their narratives in collision in that moment, um, is something that we're still sort of disentangling now, but I'm not sure that they have to be as entangled as they have been. I think in the initial aftermath, um, of the, uh, of the, of the awards, um, whether intentionally or not intentionally, I think someone, people on Taylor's team made the decision, um, to go in the direction of portraying her as a victim. And she rightfully was. Her moment, her mm-hmm. big moment was taken away. She just sold more albums than most other artists could sell um, that yep. year. She was conceivably the future of music. And this is two albums in. Um, and then to have this moment kind of taken away from her is, I think, rightfully devastating. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure we were having the same conversations about Kanye West 
then as we are now. Um, I think, no. right? Like, and, and I think that's partly because we've seen visually, and he's told us, a deterioration of his own mental health. He's sort of been very mm-hmm. open and honest about saying, okay, since then I've been diagnosed um, with bipolar disorder. Um, since then I've gone on medications and then I've chosen to sort of give up those medications. Um, and he's, he's made his story more complicated to talk about. But I'm still, I'm not convinced that they have to be talked about in tandem aside from just that particular moment. And that particular moment, like, yeah, Taylor was um, a victim. Uh, did she continue mm-hmm. to play that story afterwards? I think so. I think um, yeah. I think those decisions in many ways were made for her um, by a lot of media representations. I'm not sure that she would have gone out and packaged herself specifically um, as a victim. She wrote a song mm-hmm. about it, but she writes a song about everything that is happening in her yeah. life, right? Like, <laughs> that's just kind of how she deals with these things. Um, I think she gets a reputation for being like this vindictive person who's going to write about you and therefore destroy you. Um, uh, and I think that's very unfair. Um, and, and and maybe this origin point of it was a particularly complicated one that I just like, it's so uncomfortable to think about. It is. And to, you know, I fully agree that I think, yes, it it's cynical to read it as she was packaged as a victim after that. I think, fame and celebrity are cynical as concepts um and i don't think it's i don't think it's offensive to suggest that i would however like and and i was a person who for a long time was like oh yeah this is the best thing to ever happen to her career it i still kind of think that honestly um Mm -hmm. but um but i also was kind of asking myself what else would they have done? What else could they have done? Because like the only other option is to kind of try to play it off as like she's a survivor who overcame it, which I think they also kind of tried to do in tandem as well. Mm-hmm. Again, she was 19 years old. So I think, and also she is a tiny white woman and people like to, a lot of people when they engage with fandom, especially young people, it makes it more relatable if they view their the person that they're fans of as like a wounded bird yes. or whatever. Like that's yes. it's very much the way that people engage with female pop stars. So um, yeah, so Speak Now released October 2010 um, and that set a record uh, at the time as the fastest selling digital album by a female artist. Mm-hmm. Good for her. Good for her. Um, and <laughs> uh, at the time before, digitally was the only way to sell an album, which I guess is why that's of note. Um, yeah. So again, stacked for singles, six singles on that album, most of which were top three. And I would say that's her last, well, yeah, not I would say, definitely that's her last album that's solidly in the country category. Mm-hmm. Um, again, no worldwide totals, but 4.7 million US copies. That's down from Fearless. Uh, domestically, everything's going to be down from Fearless. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fearless yeah. was like another sort of stratospheric level. But I will say like Speak yes. Now is important also for um, the fact that it's entirely self-written. It's like, yes. it's, I mean, it's the Fuck You album. I mean, she's had several it Fuck is. You albums, I would argue, but um, it's the Fuck You album in the sense of like, you know, not only after the Kanye thing, but also there was a, there's, I don't know, there's like a country blogger. His name is Bob something. Fuck that guy. One of the things that he sort of talked about I mean, was he criticized, yeah. yeah, he criticized her singing um, as like particularly underdeveloped. And it's like, A, 
She's literally a teen. She just started this mm-hmm. career. Can you just like give it a breath, you know? Um, and mm-hmm. it's true that the previous albums before that, like, you know, you can hear Nathan Chapman singing, who produced most, most of the albums before that, um, singing underneath her to just kind of give her that low end of her vocals. Um, it's mm-hmm. true that, you know, a great deal of Fearless was, was, self, was written with Liz Rose, um, who sort of talked a lot about how, um, you know, she, Taylor would come up with most of the concepts and then she would kind of just help her find a form to put them in. But then um, comes along um, Speak Now and it's like this moment that's like, okay, there's nobody else singing on this album. Um, mm-hmm. And there is just, I wrote this whole thing. What do you people have to say now? And I think like for me, like that album is this like a- accomplishment that is far beyond what its artistic thing is. Is that like it, as, a, as a statement of like her ambitions, I think it's like a really important mm-hmm. sort of turning point. Yeah. And so I have this in my notes further down, but I'm going to come to this right away because this makes me so excited when people criticize Taylor Swift's voice. Um, so again, going to bring it up, going to flex these bona fides. Classically trained vocalist. I've been classically trained since I was five years old. Come from a family of classical trained musicians and teachers. Yeah. Um, and her voice has been criticized for all sorts of reasons. Um, you know, I've seen people like she's not a power vocalist. She's not an Adele yeah. and she doesn't have the biggest range. I don't fucking care about range. Yeah. I am sick of hearing people talk about range. Speak on it. Vocal range, vocal range is such a non-singer's idea of what a good singer is. 100%. Now, yeah. And like, uh-oh, Bree's going to bring up hockey again. But like a lot of people will point to this one <laughs> video of last year of Ilya Mikheyev beating out Connor McDavid down the ice. Connor McDavid, one of the fastest skaters in the NHL. And it was an amazing thing to watch. Ilya Mikheyev beat him. Does that mean Ilya Mikheyev is a better hockey player than Connor McDavid? No, no one is. I don't think like, it's just, it's, I don't want to say it's a party trick because like range is a wonderful thing. That's why Mariah Carey is our queen. But like, so I think, um, and one thing, I don't think a lot of non-singers realize this because uh, men, or, or I should say, DFAB, DMAB, the way we develop in puberty is very different. And with DFAB people, we, um, go through puberty very quickly and we stop growing much younger. Most of us have stopped growing since high school. But our voices do not actually mature uh, mm. in, in terms of singing until our late 20s or 30s. That's what I was, I don't know, maybe that's just something my voice teacher told me to make me feel better. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> no um, so like my voice now is completely different than it was when I was in high school. Um, yeah. I'm you know, I have finally realized like what my voice teacher tried to tell me all along. Cause I'm like, no, I'm an alto. You're a soprano. No, I'm an al- you're a soprano. <laughs> and now I finally realize it because like the way you, the way you breathe uh, changes, the way you support can change. And I actually think, um, so for one thing, country, especially when you're young demands a certain kind of resonance. And I don't think, I don't yes. want to downplay country, but I don't think country demands the same in terms of breath control as a lot of her later stuff. A hundred percent. Yeah, you you know you can you can have a really good country voice if you know how to belt. Um, again, I'm really I'm, I'm kind of doing a disservice to country here, but just no get into voice it. Get into and it. what she's what she's done as she's gotten older. Um, like I love her softness now. I love the way she creates phrases. I love the way she uses her breath. And so I think that like is she Adele? No, but her voice and her, her tone is not and. Her style isn't the same as Adele anyway. So yeah. No, and she's not trying to I be, get, right? Like they're in just entirely yeah. different games. I mean, like when you mentioned uh, control, like when I think about 
um, her re-recorded albums, and I know we're going to get into this in a little bit, like, it's it's a vast world of difference in terms of her vocal control, her ability mm-hmm. to use her voice for different things. I mean, just, mm-hmm. like, the way that she takes her vowels have, like, yeah. have changed so much that I'm like, oh, my God, I'm listening to, like, my own child as they've kind of, like, watched them grown <laughs> up. Like, like it's, it's impossible not to be, like, really, like, overwhelmingly proud of her as you're like, oh, we've seen the development from where we started to where we are now. Absolutely. You know, You Belong With Me, which, uh, you know, I'll, that's a song that I think I have done a complete 180 on with how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I only really appreciated this year when I finally got my piano, because I, I moved into a house for the first time, I was able to finally set my piano back up, and I was trying to do a cover of it, and I realized... I have to take the world's biggest breath to play this song. And I actually can't, or to sing it. And yes. I can't sing it when I'm playing piano because I can't sing it sitting down um, because you I have need, to be fully standing up lungs. to. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. So that's that's actually a very challenging song to sing, in my opinion. And to not do the entire chorus fully in your nose is an mm-hmm. added challenge. So yeah, mm-hmm. love the re-recording of it. Yes. But back to 2010, I think, you know, we'd be remiss to not mention something <laughs> that happened in 2010. Uh, <laughs> Who do you think is a bad person? Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, <laughs> but um, so like, again, maybe this is because I wasn't super like in um, into Taylor Swift discourse, but I feel like I just woke up one day around like my senior year of uni and Taylor Swift dates a lot of men was a meme. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking even at the time, like, oh man, did we not learn anything from how much we hounded like Britney about whether or not she was a virgin and shit and like it, it I'm glad you so had that thought then because mean. the rest of us didn't have that thought at all like I, like I think the rest of us were just like this is fine let's just keep doing this I mean this was also post Britney meltdown and so like yeah, yeah and I, I remember just thinking like, dude, like, because I, I was in university at the time and, you know, especially when like my first like high school relationship ended, you know what I was? A huge slut. And <laughs> and it was great. But right. I'm just like, imagine people trying to like dissect and make heads or tails of what relationship I'm in this week or who I've been spotted with this week and whatever. And so um, I I felt like, on on one hand, you know, I also think the backlash against it, like bringing up Taylor Swift dates a lot of women or dates a lot of men. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Um, <laughs> is like, <laughs> sorry. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't want to say like, I think sometimes it can be a funny joke, but it's like, I think it can be delivered as a joke fairly well, you know, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. I think I, there's also, I mean, it's a bit informed by the music, right? Like we go back to... Yeah. Even you go back to Fearless, um, Fearless has Hey Steven. It's a song about the guy from a country duo that no one remembers who they are. They're called <laughs> Love and Theft, but no one cares, you know? Um, Speak Now has Dear John, which is like to date the greatest evisceration of John Mayer. I don't, I actually believe that John Mayer himself has actually moved into hiding into a bunker in Alaska. And like whoever you see out there now is maybe a, a body double who's pretending to have John Mayer's career because he has not come out of hiding yet. The line, don't you know I was too young to be messed with? I don't know how you come back from Ooh. that personally. I don't know how you come back from that. Yeah. But, um, and then like, so that's in, like Dear John's in Speak Now. And so like you have that and then you have the story about Jake Gyllenhaal and like, it kind of all adds up to a, maybe a bigger than necessary interest in her dating life. Um, mm-hmm. But we sort of find out later that like, 
a lot of these songs were not about people that she was dating. Like Enchanted was like the song about the Owl City guy, but they never dated. Mm-hmm. Like I think they like met twice or something. Uh, yeah. Like so, so there's something about the fact that she likes to write songs about people that she encounters. Um, and then you like there's something about that going into a media machine that then like sort of transmits it to this thing that's like Look at all these people that Taylor Swift has dated and then kind of trying to turn it into a kind of an ugly narrative, you know? Mm-hmm. So with the release of Red in 2012, Swift transitioned further into the pop genre, which continued over the course of her next three albums, 1989, Reputation and Lover. But we can't just go from Reputation to Lover. We got to talk about what happened following the release of Reputation, in which her former contract with Big Machine ended. She was hoping to retain ownership of the master recordings she was unable to do. Following that, her master recordings were sold to a private equity firm. Boo! Boo. Uh, But I mean... Now I'm a real I'm a real moron. Can you explain it like I'm five? Because even reading about the dispute, I'm just like, I still don't fully understand how this works. Like I, I know what is what at the end of the day, but it yeah. seemed really complicated to me. Well, um the explain it to you like you're five is like there were bad people and then Taylor went to get away from them. That would be my <laughs> version of explaining like you're five. But yeah. I, I guess a slightly more complex version of that is um when you are a recording artist with one of these big labels, um a bunch of money is divided up. One goes to you as a publishing right, you know, like you're the person who wrote, wrote that wrote the songs and created them. Then which is like of course Taylor gets that as a part of her stuff because she's written all these songs. Um, but then the other one is the master recording sort of revenue. Um, and that's mm-hmm. like who owns the literal, physical, original master recording that is like all other copies of the songs and that are therefore just copies of that original recording. So every time that, you know, you stream a song from 1989, you are streaming a copy of that original master recording that Taylor made that is owned by Big Machine. Um, when Taylor wanted to leave Big Machine, she asked if she could buy her masters. Um, many artists try to do that. Um, she learned, we kind of know now as early as 1989 that Taylor was hearing about, you know, rumors that Scott Borchetta was interested in selling those masters because those masters are worth a lot of money. Um, especially mm-hmm. now in the moment of streaming, because back in the day, if you own a master recording, like fucking great, you know, a bunch of albums are going to get sold and then you'll make money off of that. But with streaming, like it's no longer a one-time purchase. It's like in perpetuity, mm-hmm. you're going to keep making money off this catalog. Um, and we know that. Taylor's back catalog was making mad money. Like people were still listening to Fearless as though it just came out kind of deal. Um, And so Taylor wanted to own the rights to her own albums. Um, She was, according to her, not given the opportunity to buy those. Um, And instead, it went to one of what we might reasonably describe as one of her enemies, um, Scooter Braun. Mm -hmm. Scooter Braun, um, long-time manager manager of Justin Bieber. Um, Also, Justin Bieber um, had that photo that he posted um, with like Kanye West and a couple other people that was like, what up, Taylor Swift? And it was like, okay, we don't need to be doing this. (laughs) Um, I think like the, the rightful thing is to point out that Taylor was also like taking a lot of pictures with Selena Gomez during a time when um, Justin Bieber was going through some of the worst stuff of his time. It's not like she was gentle mm-hmm. on him either. 
But yeah. um, you get to this moment where like Scooter Braun is paying a preposterous amount of money or like a, a, a fund that is led by Scooter Braun is paying a preposterous amount of money to buy those um, those masters. So what does Taylor do? There's a tweet. It's a beautiful tweet that it comes from Kelly Clarkson. And the tweet is like, you know, you if you re-recorded all your songs, literally made new recordings of those songs, I would listen to the new ones. You know, I would not even listen to the old ones. Um, and sure enough, within about a year and a half or so, the first re-recorded album, Fearless, Taylor's version, which is interesting to point out that it's her second album, but the first one of the re-records, um, mm-hmm. comes out. And why does she choose the second one? It's probably because it's the most valuable one. So suddenly like, mm-hmm. oh, you own the master recordings of the old Fearless. Let's make that value, you know, in the toilet. Fucking who cares? I'll, I'll take that from you. And what Taylor <laughs> does is like release this new recording. And then what we know is she keeps, she's going to go through all the albums and re-record them. Yeah. Um, there are some folks who theorize that she's just going to do it until the other parties are willing to come to their party and table and negotiate and be like okay you can buy your old masters since you devalued them for us so much but i don't know yeah. i don't know what's gonna happen do you to your knowledge is there any precedent of an artist going that far as to re-record and leverage that because i like maybe there is but i can't find any evidence of it you know who did it first jojo jojo of leave get out jojo I, I know because jojo ooh, was i'm gonna sound of, very ignorant but i wondered what happened to her that uh, well she got screwed out of her original record deal and so she very recently re-recorded um leave get out and i think her original first album um and she put it out there in the world to be like you know what you guys deserve a different version of this so that's that's an example of another artist who did it you know what? I will say also, you know, throughout this episode, if there is anything you take away from this, even if it's not, I'm going to start listening to more Taylor Swift. It's, you know, think of like Taylor Swift, Britney, Jojo, Kesha, and how many uh, young women and even probably many more women who weren't as successful basically had their careers held hostage mm-hmm. by people more powerful than them. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think those who had the means and the strength and the support system to actually stand up and do something about that and realize that the labels, you know, needed them more than, than the other way around or whatever. Like yes. it's, it's, it is very rare that someone has the chance to do what Taylor did. And I think like people, whether or not you are a fan of her music need to really look at the significance of that. And it's like, I think it's full on inspiring for, for other artists. It's providing a different model, right? It's providing a different story of what it could be like once you get into this industry. It's like, okay, A, make sure that when you are given the bouquet of things to own, this is something that you prioritize because then it belongs to you and you get a chance to shape the the future of your own career. Um, I think Mm -hmm. the fact that she made all of this machinery public is genuinely revolutionary. Um, There's been other artists who've had plenty of, you know, label troubles. Um, They choose to keep that private most of the time because there is a cost. There's a cost to sort of being seen as like, oh, I don't want to associate with that person. They're like a difficult person. And she got to- And sometimes there's a literal monetary cost a hundred percent a hundred percent and i think like her getting to a place in her career which is like i don't care about that i think it's actually worth more Mm -hmm. to me to sort of break these taboos um than risk losing some money and of course what ends up happening is she does not end up losing money because these these new um these new re-recordings end up breaking records you know i mean like the fact (laughs) that red taylor's version was like the second or third most streamed album of 
um, of the year 2021 is nuts because these are songs we because already it was released know. like what was it released like nine four years weeks ago before the year ended like well, yeah and, no, exactly that exactly yeah. that so this, these to are songs accumulate that much know, right like yeah. that's the, the crazy part is like these are songs yeah. we already know but people are like no i'm ready let's go i want to hear this again yeah it's uh god i it's such a great story so then now we get, I guess, to the sunnier days because she releases Lover under Republic Records, sold 3.2 million worldwide. It was praised for its style and its songwriting and returned to a more serene style after Reputation. This Personally, this is an album that grew on me. Lover? Um, yes. Uh, like, I have never been into, I guess, I don't, I know it doesn't fully fit this label, but the quote-unquote dream pop genre, I've yeah. never been super into that, but like... I, I can't normally work when I'm listening to stuff with lyrics because I'm a writer and I have difficulty writing words if I'm hearing other words in my ear. Yeah. Um, but Lover is a really good album to work to if you tune it, turn it yeah. down enough that you can't hear the words that clearly. It's a great album to work out to also because it's got true. like it's got pep without jump. You know, it's kind of <laughs> it's a good description. It's, it's not a running album; it's a good stroll album. <laughs> where where do you fall on Reputation? Are you a big Reputation? I know it's divisive for some people, but um, I actually when I look at it because I previously was kind of like of her middle albums, I like 1989 the most. Mm. Uh, since then, 1989 has call, kind of slipped a little bit for me, just because I think I don't want to say there's a lot of padding on 1989. But not everything on it is a hit out of the park. Mm -hmm. um, so I would actually put Reputation kind of evenly in terms of the esteem I hold it with 1989. It doesn't have as many good songs. But mm. um, I don't know. I think there's actually a lot. Like, um, I I do hate Look What You Made Me Do. I just have a boring <laughs> song. It doesn't sound like a Taylor Swift song. It's just, it's gimmicky. And But I mean, she tried something different, uh, so she should be praised for that. But like, I love Getaway Car. I think Getaway Car is one of my favorites, like pre-folklore songs from her. So um, I, I think it was reviewed exactly as well as it should be. Like fans can, fans will always feel very strongly about things that are different and stand out and stuff. Yeah. But I actually think when you look at the direction she was going, it makes a lot of sense. She has always kind of gone with what's popular at the moment. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I mean yeah. that like, you know, um, if the kind of slightly heavier, more EDM influence is in, Taylor Swift is going to give you her version of that. And I think that it blends really well with her catalog while still standing out. I think it's also like it was, you know, reputation to me is thematically it's like it's a concept album to me. It feels like mm -hmm. a sort of um, openly a concept album, whereas I think other ones are sort of like being hidden about being a concept album. And you get the sense that when we're in those early songs um, and they're all very heavy EDM influence, she can do it the only way she can do it, which is like to embody a character who would do these songs. And mm -hmm. maybe, maybe it feels like a little bit off because if you don't know, if you don't think of her as playing a character in those first few songs, then it can feel a little bit jarring. It's like, that's not what I was here for taylor i was sort of like i, I was here for this 1989 take of pop music but this feels a yeah. little bit jarring but then like you have songs like call it what you want to or new year's day which to me are like all time taylor yes. songs are on, on that record absolutely like everything you know post delicate on that album is just like like a it's like a it's like a perfect album to me and so Maybe didn't feel that way when we when it first came out, but um, with time, I think like she was proven right about reputation. 
Mm -hmm. So then during COVID, that's when that's when Taylor Swift became a legend for me. I have the greatest respect for people who like keep things a secret. I just think it's because I'm a person who can't keep a secret at all. Like when I decided I was starting a podcast, I told everyone mainly because I'm like, I'm not going to I'm not going to do it if if people don't. Is it accountability? Um, Is it like you need other people to hold you accountable? accountability but it's also like i'll say like a totally pathological need for validation all the time (laughs) (laughs) that's fair i I need i I need someone to give me a little thumbs up and that's just how i get through the day um (laughs) but um no like i have a friend who had he and his wife like i've known them for 10 years and he and his wife had a baby at the beginning of covid like just before just after things locked down they didn't even tell anyone besides their immediate family that they were pregnant. And like in many cases, like I didn't know, like many of us didn't know that they had a son until he was like a year old. Oh my God. And I'm just like, I'm like, wow, I want to be like you. Can't I want to have a kid. But Cannot like- <laughs> imagine that. Nope. Cannot imagine that yeah, at all. That was, that was really cool. So, but yeah, so Folklore, Evermore, both. I know Evermore sometimes gets classified as a 2021 release, but it was December 2020. Um, Both written and produced in collaboration with Jack Antonoff and the Nationals' Aaron Dester. So, like, that's how you get a a not-like-other-girls girl like me into Taylor Swift, (laughs) is you say, produce, oh, oh, the National? Oh, Bonnie Vare? Yes. I know. I know. She knows. Put that, that... I really can't remember at all, which is crazy because this was less than two years ago. I cannot remember what got me to listen to it, but I have a feeling it was the national factor yeah. because like, yeah, that's going to pique my interest. So they were technically, if you go by quote unquote album sales or worst selling album and Evermore is the first album to sell under 1 million in the US. Again, I think that's just the way things are going. You yeah. can't measure in album sales now. You have to measure in streaming revenue and because platforms like Apple Music and Spotify are such walled gardens, we'll never actually know how much revenue those generated. Truth. Um, I will say that, like, you know, there's a nice callback moment to we are never, ever getting back together um, because there's this, like, you know, there's a line that she has um, in the in the song about how Jake Gyllenhaal was listening to his indie records that's much cooler than mine. And then you sort of mm-hmm. fast forward to 10 years later and she's made the indie record with all those indie record sort of heroes mm-hmm. um, with The National, with Bon Iver. And like it becomes this validation moment that's like, I didn't even need to seek this, but this is sort of where we have arrived and me making the indie record of the year. Um, and like, who saw that sort of turn coming? So I, I really love that vindication from that sense, but also she mm-hmm. did it in a way that, you know, feels like totally her way. And like, it really feels like a Taylor album. And that's where I come back to, like with reputation, she is going to, it's, it's, it almost feels like rich kiddish to me, but like looking at a genre and thinking, I could probably do something. <laughs> like and then doing it and doing it really well. Yeah. Like um I I really love the um the back cover of the Evermore album, mainly because I love the coat. Um I yes. Good coat. big fan of wool coats, don't wear wool, um, <laughs> and have been trying to find a vegan version of that coat. Yes. Um it's Any luck? it's summer, so hopefully I can find one for a decent price now. But just like Matt and I get off your ass. Um, uh, <laughs> but um, I look at that back cover as, uh, you know, her standing out in the field. I'm like, that's her looking over what she's done and thinking, yep, 
I'm good. I did that. It's me and this braid. We did it. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, 2021 has been all about the re-releases, Fearless being the first and followed by Red and the 10 minute version of All Too Well uh, and the short film and the long pond session. Um, (laughs) November was hard on me, man. Yeah. Yeah. We had a lot of Taylor content to consume. Yes. 100%. And and then, of course, a lot of Taylor discourse to endure, which I never particularly enjoy. But so as far as I know right now, the next thing on her plate is Speak Now, Taylor's version. Um, but who knows? Um, I, I think, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if we had more secret albums coming. But I think it's the Taylor's versions that is going to be the focus from here on out for the foreseeable future. Well, that's a, these are good questions to pose. So, like, you know, the fandom gets, like, really intense. There was, like, a screenshot going around the other day about how um, there's this, like, TV company that has actually trademarked the phrase Speak Now. And so she's having trouble <laughs> with releasing the words, an album called Speak Now. This is unverified stuff, but, like, the fandom has rarely been wrong about this stuff. Um, and so mm-hmm. it's, like, unverified, but I believe it personally. Take that to be what you, what you will. Um, there's a... There's a decent question to ask about whether she's going to spend two and a half years of her time, if we're going to keep going at this pace of a mm-hmm. re-record every seven to eight months or so, um, going, continuing to do old stuff. Because that takes you off the market as a, an artist who's doing new music for mm-hmm. quite a considerably long time. Like, you know, th- this would mean that, you know, by the time she puts out her next album album that is not one of the re-records, we're looking at like mid-2024 if we keep going at this pace. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. I, ca- I can't imagine her sort of continuing to do that for this long without taking a break. Um, yeah. So I would be curious to see if she will keep doing the re-records and just be like, I'm in my re-records era and nothing else. And then everything else well, can I'm- wait. I'm also very curious to see what, because she hasn't really returned to live performing, even though, you know, this is what we're doing now. We're just pretending COVID doesn't exist and we're getting back to live music um, en masse. And she is, like, she would be the ultimate super spreader because she's such a stadium, uh, stadium sellout artist. And yet her last two albums, you know, and then you can roll in Lover to that. Those are more, you know... Danforth Music Hall kind of shows. <laughs> like those are like and so I part of that I've have to do with wondered like what do those look like? Do those look like music festival, you know, appearances or what? Well the plan with Lover was to do a Lover Fest, right? So like, you oh, know, yeah. as she as she came out with Lover. That just sounds like, like an orgy. It does. It's exactly, that's exactly what it sounds like. She was going to do an East Coast lover fest and a sort of a West Coast one. But the reason for that was because at the time her mom was going through cancer treatment. That's the subject matter. Like she wrote Soon You'll Get Better, um, which features the chicks um, from Lover um, about that, you know? And like Mm -hmm. the the idea is that like, hey, right now I can't really take 18 months or whatever to do a world tour. Like that's not something I'm capable of doing, but I will do two festivals essentially like two three-day festivals one in the east coast one in the west coast that's like let's fucking tailor out for like three days and then i'll go back to taking care of my mom (laughs) and then a pandemic hit and then you know she found herself sort of making these songs while not really having to go anywhere i mean like so much of the you know the documentary is like here's me turning my literal bedroom into a recording studio um Mm -hmm. and so where she goes from here i think it'll be an interesting question i think there is a compelling argument for her to turn um, 
the next couple of years into re-recording years because then you'll get she'll get to spend more time with her mom um, to make sure mm-hmm. that she's like doing okay, you know. Um, yeah. And so all of these, and I love that we know all of these things. Like I love that we know like the motivation for all of these things, where these songs come Absolutely. from, but also how they influence like business decisions, you know. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple more loose notes before we get to our lightning round. But uh, so she's been called the queen of bridges. And I know you agree because you've tweeted about this extensively. Um, yeah. So can you tell me a bit about what you love about her bridges, but also what some of your favorites are? Because I want to share some of my favorites too. I mean, I think I think a good bridge takes a song in a direction you didn't anticipate. Like just like a turn. Because mm-hmm. you got to get back to the song just structurally, you know? Like you got to get back to the song after you take this detour into the bridge. And she's such a beautiful bridge builder um, mm-hmm. that like to me, all those bridges are like, this is not where I was expecting the song to go at all. Mm-hmm. But yet when I now think about it, it makes such perfect sense. Um, and that's what I get out of a Taylor Bridge is like this detour is both mild, mind-blowing, but also at the exact same time, so perfectly you, you know? So, yeah. yeah. One of my favorite bridges, um, and it's my favorite bridge because it actually takes a song from one that put me to sleep to one that I was like, oh, I'm actually really interested in this. And it it just turns it from elevator music to a full story is Cowboy Like Me. Ooh, um, good bridge, good bridge. Yeah. Um, and again, that goes to show like she's singing like in something that doesn't present a huge range or anything. It's a very drawly kind of thing, but the way it, it sounds like wind to me, yeah. that, that bridge. And so, yeah, Cowboy Like Me is one of my favorite and most underrated bridges. And then also, um, I really, I, I really like Mean like it's Ooh. it's very much like that 21 year old anthem and i think the bridge is just like i've never i've never written in a convertible in my life but if i <laughs> if i were yeah. um and i wouldn't cuz like i've seen hereditary too many times i don't like sticking my head out of windows and stuff but mm-hmm. um like that would be what i would stand up and kind of like feel the wind in my hair on that bridge so. <laughs> i like that you mentioned cowboy like me because i do think like the bridge work on evermore is like sensational mm-hmm. like that you reference champagne problems off the top and it's like that's such a good bridge the 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 turn to what a shame she's fucked in the head they said and then coming back to that chorus again that turn mm-hmm. is like so emotional and they just like it completely subverts the song and then kind of like goes back into the song. I think I just like, I'm so in love with that particular bridge. That, that was like, those lyrics got to me so much. And I think they would have gotten to me anywhere. Yeah. The, what a shame she's fucked in the head. I think they would have gotten to me wherever they were in the song. But for me, it was because like when I was, you know, 23 years old and I was in like my kind of first grown up relationship with a guy yeah. and he took it much more seriously than me. And I think he really thought, you know, we were going to like, and I broke up with him because he wanted to move in together. And I was like, oh, like we, I can't, I can't solidify this. I can't make it a thing. Yeah. And I just know that I'm like, I think his family might have said this exact thing about me. This exact phrase. Um, yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, I, of course I had undiagnosed bipolar. Like, sure. <laughs> so of course I was fucked in the head. But uh, no, that's it. That, those might be my my favorite Taylor Swift lyrics. Yeah, that's ever. an extra emotional yeah. resonance for sure. That's like a deep connection yeah. with that particular well, And it's a very relatable thing for a lot of people, I think. Mm-hmm. Um so the other another couple little notes I want to touch on the the underdog narrative which we we brushed up against um, and I'll I'll uh, 
uh, shout out to my buddy, uh, Financial Diet co-founder and CEO, Chelsea Fagan. She's not a fan of Taylor Swift, which is fine. I swear it's fine. Get Um, at me. (laughs) Tweet me. We got to talk. But yes, continue. Yeah. Um, so she made a remark around the release of Red Taylor's version, which made me think, which is basically that Taylor Swift is one of the most powerful female singers today, but she portrays herself as an underdog. I think it's an interesting take. I think it's, f- I, I would describe it as fair-ish because I get that that's what you see when you're not engaged in, mm-hmm. in fandom. Um I also wonder if the underdog narrative at this point is more fan constructed than anything, because I when I actually listen to her music, you know, especially from Lover On, I'm like, no, this is the perspective of a 32-year-old woman who knows that she is 32 years old and sings like a woman who has had a lot of experience and knows how fly she is. Mm-hmm. But also as a woman, I don't know if it's straightforward to say, well, she's had a lot of success, so why does she portray herself as an insecure underdog? Because like, I am a person who has had objective success in my career and objective success in like, you know, my marriage and my life. Right. But like... I still hear my first boss screaming at me sometimes. Like I still, yeah. you know, I I can be told enough times that I'm pretty, but I still hear the guys from my dorm room calling me an ugly bitch whenever whenever I'm getting ready. And mm-hmm. I think so I think it's weird to act like she's not allowed to talk about insecurities and stuff. I mean, that's that's where I fall on it too, is that, you know, I'm like, let's not even take Taylor, let's take one of the most powerful artists in the history of rap music eminem talks about how you know like every time that he apologizes for using words he should not be using he's like i'm sorry like i literally still think of myself as like a kid who is being dunked on in like sort of the battle rap situations and it's like no eminem you've graduated past that and it's like i'm not sure how much responsibility you have to banish those voices because i'm not sure at what point you get to the place where you go no i for sure made it um we see this in action when like you know, there was that Netflix show that made a Taylor Swift joke and then like mm-hmm. Taylor, you know, about her dating a lot of people. Um, yeah. And then she like went tweeted about the show and it was like, oh, maybe I would have personally let that go. But for her, yeah. like it's still 2010, like it's still 2009, 2010 when people are talking about you in that way. Um, mm-hmm. You see that like a couple of weeks ago, um, there was that interview with Damon Albarn and it's like, yes. Damon, my my dude, like you've accomplished a lot in your career. You don't need to just throw darts at Taylor Swift for no reason. Where he goes, like she yeah. doesn't write her own music, and she's like, "Am I? Is it? What is it? What is it that I have to do in order to convince yeah. these people to not think these thoughts anymore?" And in that way, you I must was, think of yourself as an underdog. I was really angry when people took interpreted that situation as Taylor Swift. Oh, she's portraying herself as an undergrad, like uh, undergrad underdog. <laughs> like, first of all. He brought it up, but secondly, Unprovoked. I'm like, why are why are more people not like just jumping on the fact that this guy went on about how like, oh well, this young artist is not genuine and this artist is really genuine. And I'm yeah. like, who who the fuck asked you? And yeah, like, for real. A weird thing like, oh, Billie Eilish is so much more organic. Why? Because she has green hair. Like, they're both just artists doing their own thing. But 100%. I don't know. It felt it felt so like. I'm 15 and I'm trying to prove that the music I like is deeper because this person plays their own instruments. That's exactly like, what it was. That's exactly what it was. Very and I think silly. Like, and you have no, I think if you're Taylor Swift, you have no, if these slights keep coming at the pace that they've been coming, sure, you're getting mm-hmm. bigger and your platform is getting bigger and maybe you have a responsibility to know just the size of your platform. Um, but on the other hand, it's like you don't have a responsibility not to be offended. You're allowed to be offended every time that this shit yep. happens because it happens 
all the time still and they use it to discredit her and i think like it's like what else can she do at this point to make sure that these things don't come up and i i don't know the answer to that and Mm -hmm. neither does she i don't think the last loose note I had was about privacy. And I know that since 2016, she has been in a relationship with an actor. And I, I forget his name. And I think that's kind of beautiful. That I, because <laughs> Joe like, Alwyn, I really yes. think, yeah. Oh, I should remember that. Alwyn is my my father-in-law's name. Um, but yeah, um, I, I mean, I always say that like the dream is if you can pull something off like Dolly Parton, where you just have this like really nice marriage that gets no attention or whatever, like which and I'm not <laughs> saying that marriage is the ultimate goal for everyone either. Like, you know, yeah. you can be single and very happy. Um, but I think I, I think that's lovely because I think that Taylor Swift has done a very good job at kind of reclaiming narrative around her and saying, you know what, if you're going to talk about this, you know, let's give them something to talk about. Like, or I'm at least going to tell my side of the story yes. through through the medium, at which I am very good, which is songwriting. Um, so, but, you know, I like that she has been able to find a moment of privacy and people not just like dice. I mean, people still try. Like, you know, I, I think I looked them up to confirm how long they'd been together. And there was a thing of like, ooh, Taylor Swift makes a rare comment about their relationship. I'm like, man, you guys are thirsty. Um, but I, I think the desperate. one thing we people forget about desperate. Taylor absolutely but the one thing we forget about her is that much like britney spears she's been in the spotlight since she was a literal child Mm -hmm. and celebrities particularly female celebrities essentially lose their right to privacy and what i think people don't think about is like switch to switch from thinking about it from a celebrity perspective to a child development perspective because they are children with child brains Right to privacy is actually so crucial for a teenager and for someone who's coming of age. And so now I look at her writing about her relationships with someone like, you know, uh, John Mayer, who messed with her when she was 19, Mm -hmm. 19, in which, again, the like decision making parts of your brain are still forming. And so I look at her, frankly, being able to write about those experiences as a pretty big deal because... I think that fame, even fame that goes pretty well, fame for a child is inherently traumatic. Like mm-hmm. it's it's a traumatic experience because you are completely losing any normal concept of boundaries. And so when people say she talks about her personal life too much, I'm just like, I don't think we can think of Taylor Swift like a person who's had normal teenage experiences like the rest of us at all. I also think I also think she doesn't, right? Like she's not someone who's out there in the interviews like being like, let me tell you about the details of this relationship. She yeah. tries to put it in the, the art form that she uses, which is like her songwriting. And sure enough, like she tries to put in as much sort of autobiography as possible. I think that is a part of her art. Um, but she's not it's not like she's out there in interviews being like, Man, what John Mayer did to me was fucked up, which like she should. Um, mm-hmm. but 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 she doesn't. Um and I think like there's a lot of sort of projection onto it. And we've seen we've seen her sort of grow out of that in a few particular ways, right? We've seen her grow out of that in like the last couple of albums. There was like a little bit less of it. Um, you can tell by the songwriting, especially on like Reputation and Lover, that there is that fierce protection of what it's like to be in this relationship. There's not as much mm-hmm. desire to be as divulging of it. 
maybe part of that is that there's such a mismatch between their their celebrity profiles. Like I think like yeah, and and maybe the pressure will grow. Like you know, Joe is um, gonna be in the adaptation of Conversations with Friends, and like that might be like a reason for him to sort of you know catapult into a different level of fame. And if he does, like maybe you'll have to address it in a way that's like a bit more you know head on. But while they're so mismatched, they just they feel no need to sort of talk about it. So, you know, like make it to be basically their identity. And I think that's great. Yeah. The fact that he's helping write songs um, on folklore and evermore um, is very sweet. He's clearly a very mm -hmm. talented songwriter. You know, I just yeah. like I like this for them. And I would like to know if they're happy. I would like to know as little as possible about their happiness. Like that's this is great. Yeah, like I like I said, the coolest thing would be just like five years from now, her to do like my friend would be like, by the way, I have a kid. Like, yeah. here's two children. Yes, <laughs> here are two children. <laughs> um, so, and my last, uh, and I, I just remembered why I wrote this. My last note is: Is Taylor Swift a freak for not eating a burrito until her twenties? Um, which I believe, <laughs> I, I rewatched Miss Americana um, in beginning of October when I was moving, like literally yeah. while I was packing my apartment. And I noticed the scene that I'd never noticed before, which is when she's talking about like, some people have like never had burritos. I didn't have a burrito until like last year. And <laughs> just... And you were like, what? <laughs> I don't... I, I I would move heaven and earth for a good burrito. So. <laughs> I mean, I think to me, it's like understandable. Like, I actually don't think, I don't find that that surprising that you live Nashville, in such a sheltered- not a big burrito city. Not a big burrito city. The, it's understandable to me that you might have grown up in such like a sheltered and very specifically administered life. Like, we're going to mm -hmm. go from here to there. We're going to go from here to there. By the way, here's your lunch. Um, that you just have like such little agency. Um, yep. So, yeah, I, I, it's not a surprise to me. And in my defense, um, I grew up in northeastern Ontario in, in Timmins, and I didn't have poutine. I know everyone else pronounces it poutine. You have to understand northerner French. We say poutine. Yes. I never had poutine for the first time until I was 19. Yeah. See, that's um, wild to me. Yeah. So. I grew up in an anti-poutine household. Like, I don't know. My mom uh, was never super restrictive in terms of what we ate, but she was very much from like the 1980s. Fat is bad. And so she's she's just like, I just can't. You put the gravy and the cheese. That's one step too far, man. And so I, <laughs> um, and I can't believe your mom thought about poutine at all because like the yeah. I, if you start thinking about it, then of course it's going to be unappetizing. Like conceptually, yeah. it's not the most delicious food, but actually it is. <laughs> Listeners, if you ever find yourself in Timmins, Ontario, there's a place, it's in the middle of a residential neighborhood, but it's called Chenu, and it's a convenience store. It's a literal hole in the wall because it's a convenience store with a little window inside that serves hot food, and they serve the best, messiest poutine ever. Um, I, again, one of my first times having poutine, really, really drunk, and walked 40 minutes through minus 18 weather to get this poutine. <laughs> so... So what I'm saying is I saw the light eventually. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> well, we've come to my favorite part of the show, which is the lightning round. It's, uh, it's for when we have no thoughts behind our eyes. So okay. number one, what is a song of hers that is not a single that you wish were a single? Uh, Long Live, the song, the album closer of Speak Now. It's one of my favorite Taylor songs. It's like this big sort of U2 Bruce Springsteen stadium record. And it's like, every time it's on, I'm like, yeah, this is how life should be all the time. 
Awesome. Uh, for me, it's a toss up and they're actually back to back songs, um, Clean and Wonderland, um, both of which I'm surprised weren't singles because Clean is really popular. Fans yeah. love it. Um, and then Wonderland uh, has just has the makings of a single for me. And I feel like they they could have they could have um, bet on it. And I think it would have done really, really well. I agree. Um, I agree. So I kind of I think I know the answer that you're going to give to this one. Favorite opening track from an album. State of Grace from Red. Of course. Um, big, big State of Grace guy. Talk about State of Grace way too much. I'm a State of Grace historian. I Listen, Long Live and State of Grace occupy like a similar sort of sonic palette. Like I think they're both mm-hmm. songs that you play, that you develop and play that's like, oh, this is going to be fun in an arena. And I think like listening to Red Taylor's version um, this year, like it's been like, Oh, you figured out the parts of the song that ricochet around an arena beautifully. Like, you know yeah. how this song takes up space. And so State of Grace for me is like, ugh, that's that's the one. People get really mad when you compare an artist, especially like a contemporary artist, to old white guy songs. But mm-hmm. um, State of Grace, I... I think it's kind of our our generations or whatever. It's very comparable to where the streets have no name to me. Yeah, yeah. Speak on it. Tell them. Um, so mine is, and I don't. I, I think everyone would expect me to say Willow, uh, and I was gonna say Willow, um, but um, Sparks Fly. Like I said, I didn't Ooh. hear it until I got really into Taylor Swift. It's like. I don't know. That song fills me with feelings. It's a great song for singing along. It really sets the tone of Speak Now. And I think it pulls mm-hmm. you in and you think the album's going to be full of more bops than it is um, mm-hmm. when it's actually a very layered album. But yeah. It's, it's not as bop fly. heavy of an album. Yes. The bop per capita is. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So a song you'd like to hear her cover. A song I'd like to hear her cover. You know what I was thinking about the other day is um, I think I would like her to take on an Adele song. And I don't know how that would go. Mm. Like to me, like when I think about Go Easy On Me, I for some reason, that's a song that feels like it's within the wheelhouse of Taylor. Like I like it when Taylor's sort of stretching herself to the limits of her vocal abilities. Like there's always mm-hmm. something magical that happens in that spot. And so um, I, for some reason, Easy On Me is like the answer that I've been thinking about as when I saw this like list, you know? I would, I mean, I would love to hear any other artist do an interpretation of Easy On Me. So, yeah. um, but even though Country Taylor is not the version of Taylor that I've, ex- I've engaged as much with, I, I know, <laughs> but I would say Not Ready to Make Nice by the Chicks. I think Ooh, that is, would be so good her. Pick. Good I pick. think it would suit her voice. And I think I would like to hear it with like, you know, maybe a little bit more mandolin, a little less electric guitar, like, yes. you know, um, I, but I think Taylor uh, and I, I think the chicks would, would give their blessing. They I seem they like, would. they seem like cool ladies. All right. <laughs> what is your favorite song from your least favorite album? Uh, this would imply that I have a least favorite album, which like I don't know. I don't. Oh, no. I don't. <laughs> I don't have like an album I hate most. Like that's not a thing for me. Mm-hmm. I think like the album that I probably return to least these days, um, and this sort of really waxes and wanes. Um, the album that I return to least is Lover. Um, okay. And I guess if I had to pick my favorite song from Lover, is probably right now it's The Archer. 
Um, I think the mm-hmm. way that the Archer builds is so beautiful and so underrated. It's also the track five. Taylor has a sort of long and storied history of her track fives. Um, and like, yeah. you know, fans have rankings of track fives. All too well is a track five. Dear John <laughs> is a track five. Um, the Archer is a track five from Lover. And like where she puts the most emotionally resonant songs of her albums tend to be the track fives. Um, and I think like every time that I return to the Archer, it just kind of like, just like knocks me over. Um it's just like a really powerful, beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Um, so this might be a bit of a dark horse for me, but uh, should have said no. Um, Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Like I think it's. I know it's trite to say that her self-titled and her debut is my least favorite, but the fact is, it is. I have spent no time with that album, yeah. um, and I have no temptation to return to it that much. But should have said no. I think is like boppy and fun and it's really like and this is totally i realizing it's my dance teacher coming through really <laughs> age appropriate I, <laughs> that's like the worst thing about me you can tell i'm a dance teacher because i'll hear a song and be like that's so age appropriate like <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm so surprised that you didn't pick like tim mcgraw which is a perfect song from that album but you know uh, yeah i mean tim mcgraw is a great song but i just i, Our song? I like a little more I, it was close. It was between Should Have Said No and Our Song. Okay, fair enough. I think Our Song is very cute. Um, yes. Okay, uh, so now on the other hand, least favorite song from your favorite album? Um, Better Than Revenge. Uh, Better Than Revenge from Speak Now. Uh, it's an uncomfortable yeah. song, and it's an uncomfortable song to think about. It was it was uncomfortable then. It's uncomfortable now. You know, it's yes. a song that is like primarily like constructed around being very slut shamey. Um, yes. And she's acknowledged that. She's acknowledged she was like, I don't know if I like that song anymore either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would say like better than Revenge, even though like at the time it was like sonically very fitting with the moment. It's very paramorish, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And it's like a lot of fun to listen to, but like um, she's better known for the things that she does on the mattress. It's like, why, man? No one That's needs gross. this. It's That's not That's a great. gross lyric, yeah. No great. But, um, and I would also say, like, I don't like that song particularly because I find it too paramorish. Like, it doesn't, I don't mm. think that's a lane that Taylor plays particularly well in. Maybe yeah. she would now, but, um, yeah, it's, um, I mean, because you kind of, I mean, Olivia Rodrigo, we would co- directly compare Good For You to that one Paramore song. Um, yeah. So, like, that, that kind of emo-y style is coming Misery back. Maybe business. she could do something like that now. Yeah. But um, So my favorite album is Evermore, and I would say my least favorite song on it is Dorothea. It's just boring. I don't come <gasps> back to it. I know. I know. I'm, I'm You don't sacrilege. love that bridge? I love that bridge a lot. I love the Dorothea bridge a I, lot. I think it's like a sweet... It just... To me, it's a little too almost like, um, and Chili Gonzalez has talked about this, um, how like certain songs use melodies that are almost like schoolyard rhymes and stuff. And that's how, you know, that's how we get hooked to it. Um, You know, I think Shake It Off is a really good example of that. Um, But I think it's just a little too bad, 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 bad. Like it's, it's not my style. I get it. I get it. That's fair. Not to my style. Okay. So your favorite collaboration she's ever done uh wow okay she hasn't done enough collaborations to my liking personally um yeah so are we count wait are we counting that like could be like writing collaborations absolutely because then i'm gonna say cruel summer um which is <laughs> <laughs> sorry audio medium brie just started excitedly flapping yeah go ahead tell tell the people why you're excited about um cruel summer big song big chorus it's, big yeah. everything 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the Annie I Clark just... of it all, you know, like they just, yeah. I love a good swell. Uh, and this also comes from me being a choreographer. I like something where you just feel like you can stretch. And yeah, so Cruel Summer was it was absolutely I, my pick as well. The bridge, the bridge to Cruel Summer is just like like she's bouncing off the roofs at that point, you know. Like and like and you mm-hmm. can totally hear the Saint Vincent influences of the guitar work in there. Like the Jack Antonoff, I think truly Jack Antonoff went off on um, Cruel Summer. Like I would say. Yeah, Girls mm-hmm. Over is a beautiful song. Um, the song that she did with Phoebe Bridgers for Red Taylor's version was just like satisfying on many levels. Um, Taylor has had this criticism for like a long time. It's like, hey, where are your collaborations with women at? Because you don't really seem mm-hmm. to be doing it a lot. Every time that you have a woman on, um, they tend to be sort of doing backup singing, um, a lot of the chicks um, on Lover. But then, you know, um, there's like fucking Gary Lightbody. Is that his name? He's I from think so. Gary Lightbody. I think hard bodies. <laughs> Gary Lightbody. I think that's his name. Hold on. The guy from Snow Patrol. Uh, yeah, Gary Lightbody, who like sings a song oh on a Taylor Swift song, <laughs> sings a verse on a Taylor Swift song. Ed Sheeran also gets a verse. You know, like those are those mm-hmm. are fine, but it's like you could probably do a little bit more to feature more women in your songs. And then she does this song with Phoebe Bridgers, who's very much. Um, I would say someone who a lot of people consider in the lineage of Taylor Swift, at mm-hmm. least in terms of songwriting, in terms of song construction. Um, so that was just like a nice um, full circle moment of after getting all that criticism. I like, though, that you thought that Gary Lightbody was a made up name. That's uh, yeah. that personally satisfying to me. Just <laughs> it really makes me think of hard bodies, which uh, <laughs> listeners stay tuned for our upcoming Cohen Brothers episode. Um, <laughs> So this is great, though, because who's someone that you would like to see her collaborate with? Uh, wow, that's a really good question. I mean, like, honestly, that Phoebe Bridgers scratch a niche for me personally. Um, mm-hmm. There are, when I think about, like, country artists who could really use the boost um, and also sonically fit, um, I think about Morgan Wade. I don't know if you're familiar with Morgan Wade. Like, she's had one album out last year. It's really good. You should check it out. Um, okay. And, like... I conceive of like I like I think there's something that fits between the two of them that could work really well. So that's what I want is like more collaborations in that space. So this is a femme fronted band, uh, the Sonderbombs. And um, quick thing about me in starting like late 2021, I've been getting back into the punk and emo stuff that I was really into in high school because I wasn't like. It was a big fighting point for my parents and I that I liked this kind of music. Like, it was like, where was our little girl that used to play the piano? Um, <laughs> and now it's like, wait a minute. I, I, I'm married. I have a home. I can, I can listen to this music again. And the Sonderbombs. You can do whatever you want. Yes. The Sonderbombs has been a great way back into it. Um, and they actually also incorporate a bit of ukulele to their song, which I know sounds very like 2013 and trite, but. Um, it it's still very cool emo kind of like girl pop punk um and some of their some of their music though like the lyrics are just heartbreaking i would recommend anyone look up the lyrics to twinkle lights because mm. it just um oof it hurts on my heart a lot 
And actually, I find their singer's voice very much complements Taylor's voice. She has a little bit of a um, more force in the high register. And mm -hmm. so I would love to, I would love for Taylor to just pop on that album because I would love to see her play in that emo pop punk space. I think yeah. it's also really clear from the collaboration she's done with the, you know, guys like, you know, the, the National Bonnie Vera that she is really respected by musicians of all genres. Yes. So it's just like, you could go for it. They would welcome you with opening open arms, I think. I love this excitement. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. I think you should pitch it to everybody involved. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what's a lyric that you feel like she wrote just for you? Boy, um, I'd, I would say I'd return back to Long Live. Um, mm -hmm. I would say I'd return to, I mean, it's the very chorus of Long Live, Long Live, the walls we crashed through, all the kingdom lights mm -hmm. shine for me and you. Like that song comes out. It's 2010. I'm on the verge of graduating university. I'm on the verge of sort of like having left all the people that I've sort of developed as a community recently. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there's something about wanting to bottle that feeling, that bottle that energy. Um, because you don't know when you'll have it again. And maybe you won't have it again, but you don't know that you'll have it again. It's not, it's not a given. And so I think for me, like long live is a really powerful um, encapsulation of that moment partly because of also the timing of when it came out you know um that's something that i think about um i'm really grateful that i had long live i'm really grateful that i have taylor's music for that period mm -hmm. yeah. uh okay i gotta get through this one without crying um okay. marjorie um should have asked you to write it down for me should have asked should have kept every grocery store receipt because every scrap of you would be taken from me and um in 2018, um, which was also when I was nearing like my bipolar diagnosis, but like mm -hmm. experiencing like the worst of it because I wasn't getting treatment yet. Um, what happens within the span of a couple of weeks? My best friend from high school died very suddenly of a drug overdose. And then my mm -hmm. grandpa died. And my grandpa and I, we are insanely close um Aww. i'm his youngest i or i was his youngest grandkid um he was just he was the greatest man in the world mm -hmm. and the reason why you know again audio medium i just picked up a very bad printout picture a that my mom took off her digital camera i think we're sitting at pearson airport in the terminal there that was right before he took his oh, wow. last big trip um yeah. and i woke up really early to see him off and there is a better picture of us when, uh, you know, as adults, um, or when I was an adult, um, I was like 24 in it. And um, it was just the best picture I've ever seen. And uh, shortly after he passed away, the person who took the picture, um, I, I asked like, hey, can I, can I get this picture printed out? Like, I want to put it on my wall. And they didn't have a copy anymore. Oh, no. And it was the kind of thing they they could have saved it and they chose not to. And also, you know, with my friend from high school having passed away, like I have almost no pictures of us from high school because, you know, we think digital digital cameras and digital pictures are forever, but you have mm -hmm. to actually keep your hard drives you and do. stuff. You and, do. You have to preserve it, um, yes. You know, we have one picture together from high school, her and I, and I just like after, after that happened, I was literally grasping at things like I, you know, made sure like I can't get rid of my grade nine yearbook because I have her writing in this. And like, I can't, you know, get rid of this because it's like, you know, a thing that grandpa left at, left in my car mm -hmm. and stuff. And so like, it's literally like, I love the mention of like keeping grocery store receipts and stuff because like you're just grasping at scraps mm -hmm. to save of someone. So like that's, mm -hmm. um, 
preservation really of memory resonated. is like a really is a really hard thing to do, right? Um, it totally. takes a lot of work, and it takes it takes sometimes it takes physical space to be like I'm gonna make a point of keeping this thing and preserving it for a long time. And like sometimes you don't think about that when you're in the middle of right, you know, trying to create that space. So that's a that's a huge thing. But that yeah. that lyric, man, that's like a piercing, beautiful lyric. Thanks for sharing that. And again, an amazing bridge too. Um, yeah, it is. So, what's a song you didn't like at first, but now love? Hmm. Um, I think maybe Afterglow from Lover. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a song that I, I think even now, like, you know, it's not a song that I return to often, but I think some songs, particularly from Lover, some songs, you kind of have to get to a moment where you say, oh, I get what this is. I get what you're trying to do here. Um, and maybe it doesn't work on you the first 20 times, but then <laughs> like you're walking home and it's like sunset on a particularly cool fall day and the mood is the exact correct mood that that song was created for and there is like a there's a sort of a magical bridging of the two of them together and like that's that's the stuff you know when you suddenly sort of have access to that emotional space that that song was trying to sort of preserve for you um Mm. so i would say like afterglow while still not a song that i return to very often i'm like it's very special to me because you know you just have this like this moment where you're like, I get what this is. I now understand what this is, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. Editors know what I need to come in with a factual correction. I was wrong about favorite opening track. I, I was right about the album, but uh, Sparks Fly is not the opening track of Speak Now. Is it not? Um, it's, it's mine. It's mine. It's mine. Which is still, I, I will say, yes. favorite yes. opening track. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, and I would say mine is also tied for a song that I didn't like at first and now love. Because again, when this came out and it was Everer, I was so not into this music. And I thought it, set, I thought it was a little annoying. I thought it was a little nasally. Mm-hmm. I'll say that I cannot wait for the Taylor's version re-recording if it comes out because I'd love to hear a more mature voice on it. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, I think what she did with um, with you belong with me how much better it sounds on, yes. as you know recorded in her 30s which is the other song that is tied for I did not like it at first for different reasons I thought it was the ultimate not like other girls song I thought it was silly and juvenile and then I look back and I'm like wait a minute she did describe what we, a lot of us go through in high school and like I think you know, now you can sing it maybe with a degree of self-awareness, but yeah, I actually think as cringy as it is, there's something about it that's incredibly true to life because how many times have you looked at the person that you, uh, you wanted, whether you're in high school or, you know, someone you work with or whatever, and you yeah. think like, no, they should be with me. And it's a really anguished feeling it and is. we'll downplay it because maybe that's a very teenage thing or that's a very like little girl way to feel, but like- it's it's very real. And I also would argue that yeah. that's not just something that girls experience. That is, I mean, have you ever heard of a nice guy? Like that's, no, and the, that's and a the guy's fact, experience too. Many men have made entire careers off writing those songs, for sure. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so then, um, and besides Marjorie, for me, um, have any of her songs ever made you cry? And if so, let me know one that has made you cry. Uh, not too. I know that I said that like Lover is the album I returned to least, but like it's another <laughs> Lover choice, which is Daylight, mm. um, the album okay. closer, the album closer from from Lover. 
mm-hmm. I think just like the the lines like my love was as cool as the cities I lived in everyone looked worse um in the night and like she gets this, to this transition where, you know, I've been sleeping so long in a 20-year dark night, and now I see daylight. I only see daylight. Like, it just has this, like, validation feeling, like, this, like, overwhelming validation feeling of, like, you know what? You're where you're supposed to be. Um, you mm-hmm. need to take a, bre- take a deep breath and be where you are because it's okay for you to be here. I think there's something about daylight that, like, again, when it's, like, hits you at the right angle, man, um, it's, 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 like, it's, like, this overwhelming emotional feeling. So of all the, like, uber personal ones and stuff, I think um, the one that always gets me because I'm actually still to this day incapable of listening to this one without crying, mm. even though I think its lyrics are intentionally, like, emotionally manipulative, but mm. never grow up. Um, oh, wow. Good pick. I mean... Yeah, so I'm a dance teacher and I've now, I've been teaching dance since I was 17. So you do the math, that's 15 years. And so now there are a lot of kids that like I've seen through from the start of their dance journey to graduation. And in particular, I have two girls now. I'm not teaching them full time because our studio closed because of COVID, um, but I'm still like doing Zoom lessons and mentoring them and stuff. And I've been essentially their only dance teacher. And now seeing them like going like, they're going to college next year. They got their first boyfriends, like, and they're going through hard stuff too. And so, like, or even like, um, you know, I have a little cousin or second cousin, I guess, who, um, you know, she's like fourteen or fifteen. And last time I saw her was pre-COVID, so she was twelve and tiny. And she mm-hmm. recently got to appear in, um, in a commercial for her local health unit promoting vaccines. Um, and I looked Aww. at her, I'm like. Oh my God, she's she's a grown up. She's and a I went I went home and I listened to Never Grow Up and I cried. <laughs> <laughs> like I know it's a bit of a schmaltzy song. It's no, I love a little that. like but it's just so I don't think anyone, whether you have kids or not, it's you always have someone in your life that you're just like, oh my God, they're growing up too fast. I mean, you're a parent, so I'm sure- I'm a, like, It's just happening it's, on a daily yeah. basis. It's like, who gave you permission to be this grown up? And she's five. <laughs> so this is will only keep happening. Yeah, 100%. Did the first time she ever put her hands on her hip, did you did you just melt into a puddle? <laughs> <laughs> I did. But then it happened yeah. every day afterwards. And now I'm like, I no longer remember it as fondly because we keep <laughs> going through this every day. It's great. It's great. It's the best. Oh. So now- We've come to the peak. Now, peak means different things for different people. It could mean when you were most into it, when it was the highest quality, when it was the most like like itself. So for you, what is the peak of Taylor Swift? Well, I think the fun thing about that question is that we are living through the peak of Taylor Swift right now. I mean, uh-huh. <laughs> the, the notion that like, just think, since the start of COVID, so since July of 2020, this mm-hmm. woman has put out, Two new albums and two re-recorded albums of her old stuff, um, mm-hmm. with the looming uh, let's let's say threat of more re-recorded <laughs> albums, right? Like, like how long can she sustain this? How long can she sustain her complete dominance on discourse? And like nobody thought that Red would Red Taylor's version would be as big as it ended up being, um, but like aided by the all too well, you know, 10 minute version, aided by that, that incredible SNL performance, aided by all mm. of the discourse about a scarf. Um, like we really <laughs> are living in the moment of Taylor Swift, uh, you know, to paraphrase many other people, she is the moment. And I think like that is, um, 
interesting to me because, you know, we haven't yet encountered the consequences that this is going to have in the music industry. I am betting that there are many music execs who are looking at everything Taylor is doing and thinking mm-hmm. about their back catalog and being like, how can I create that for everyone who has passed before? How can I like mm-hmm. reignite interest in this person's work? Um, even though it's been 10 years, it's been 20 years, 15 years. Um, and I don't think anybody can do it the same way that they can, that the Taylor can. And so we truly are in the moment where the thing is the most like itself, which is like this complete grip on the discourse of, of Taylor. Like whenever she does anything, it's going to be the story. And I think like, that's like, I don't know, that's a fun, that's a fun place to be. I love that place. So I kind of have two because I can't decide like what the what my idea of peak is. But for me, yeah. I think a very distinct peak is Lover. Not just because of the album, because I don't think it's her best album. Mm. But I do think that was the album in which, first of all, I think it's a significant album because it was her first uh, away from Big Machine. And it so it was the first of kind of feeling like she was in charge. It was the first album in which she was a bona fide superstar. Like she'd always been big and been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But this was when I felt like she pretty much can do anything right now. Mm-hmm. And she's like, she's going to be fine. Like she can survive pretty much any controversy. No risks um, whatsoever, you know, like 100%. Yep. Yeah. And um, I also just felt like because of the kind of tonal shift of Lover from Reputation, I it it really did feel like an artist coming into their own and settling into um, not even a new sound, but like kind of knowing this is the sound that I know I can create amazing things with. Um, And I think it's actually like, even though people act like folklore and evermore are such a departure, um, lover is actually a really good runway into those. So I think, um, I don't know, Lover just seems like her at her peak power. And like you talked about the Taylor Fest and her deciding like, I'm going to kind of reinvent the way I'm doing live, at least for now. And who yes. knows, she might find a really creative way to reinvent live post, post-COVID. post Is that going to be a thing? I don't know. Um, <laughs> at some point, Right yes. now, we're, most COVID is where we are right now. But um, yeah. yeah, so um, I think just it showed that she was really, she had... When I say come into her own, I really mean come into her own. I will also say the release of Red Taylor's version did feel like the peak of you can't escape her. You may not like her. You may Mm -hmm. not want to hear about her. But you have to accept that she is not going anywhere. And again, like with not only releasing the 10-minute version of All Too Well, but then releasing the short film, which Sadie Sink was amazing in. um, (laughs) Yes. That was her just saying, I know what you guys think of me. Just letting you know there's more below the surface. And like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was the ultimate I'm in control of my own narrative moment. 100%. 100%. So if you were to recommend just three Taylor Swift songs to a friend, I was going to say albums, but I'm making it even harder. Oh, my God. How dare you? what What would they be? That's impossible. Three songs from someone who's gone through so many different iterations of her. Stop it. Um, right? Okay. 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 <laughs> um, okay. I would have to include style. I think style is a really like fun choice. That's like, that okay. says that like even in her most um, sort of, you know, obsessed about romance and very little else, 
um, stages, she can be so fun about it in a way that like you, you don't. I don't think you like listen to other people be as fun about romance. Um, mm-hmm. I would say style, and let's say invisible string. Um, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> please explain to people what you just did as a reaction because um, exactly. I that. yeah, I think my face kind of looked like the ghost face killer from Scream for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> But in a good way. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah. Invisible String is, I think, a perfect song um, from start to finish. It's a beautiful bridge. It's a beautiful, just like a beautiful melody that you can just live in forever and ever and ever. Um, so Invisible String. Um, oh, just the most gorgeous, gentle, little tender lyrics that she's written in her career. Um, Very sweet. Yeah. Invisible String style... And I'm going to say State of Grace. Um, I'm going to say that will be the last one that I would pick. Because you need, I think you need something that says that like, you know, this artist has these intimate ambitions that are like, okay, I'm going to get you in a room and I'm going to whisper the secret to you. But also this artist has the ambitions of like, let's fill up this arena because this is some Joshua Tree shit, you know? Um, <laughs> and and State of Grace is like, is like bullet the blue sky out here. Like, it's like, it's like a big song that says, I will have all your attention and I'm going to take it now. Um, and so I think you need the sort of full range of Taylor experience. So I went for three songs because I'm thinking if someone hasn't listened to Taylor Swift, if they haven't actively listened to her, it's because they don't want to. And it's because they have a certain idea about who she is and what she is. So I went with three songs that are like, okay, I'm sure you think you know her. Um, Dear John, I think is so essential because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the way... We, you know, I think that really, I don't want to say changed the way, but at least entered into the mainstream discourse, the way we talk about age gaps and power dynamic in relationships. And then it's like, this is something that happened to her. It's an extremely intimate song. Um, Coney Island, um, if we're talking later album stuff. uh, Because also, hey, you've, you got the national, you got that. (laughs) You're not like other girls. Okay, listen to this song. Um, But I I think Coney Island is just a beautiful, very sad little song. And um, I think, you know what? Tell yourself it's a national song because you don't want to listen to Taylor Swift. It's very, (laughs) very the national song. Very nice Um, of you to want to just offer that little like, oh, you can just tell yourself it's a national song. Here's your way out of this. um, And then uh, Afterglow, um, I think kind of rounds that out. Yeah. So, and that is also, that's... That's the genre spanners as well. I feel like that kind of gets the best idea of where she's been. Yeah. So uh, finally, how big is the gap between the best of Taylor Swift and (laughs) I know we don't like the W word, but the worst of her stuff? (laughs) No, I mean, some songs are not good. Like it's not, I think that's okay to say. Um, Mm -hmm. So Taylor has like, I, to my reading, um, a famously sort of antagonistic, relationship with fans in terms of like putting out the first single and it being like what the hell is this man why are you doing this to us and i think i'm thinking here like look what you made me do and the the discourse of like what is this song um same deal with like me like me is like not i hate me no way i I hate myself too but i hate (laughs) me (laughs) 
primarily I hate me. Um, me yeah. is like not, you know, and like, and they tend to be palate cleansers. Like she uses yeah. these sort of first singles as palate cleansers. I often wish that these songs don't actually end up on the album itself. Cause I'm like, what is this? And what is it doing here? Why do I have to put up with me? You didn't even feel good enough about the song to put it in the top third of the fucking whole album. So why do <laughs> I have to contend with it? God damn it. Um, and so, uh the gap is big the gap is the gap is definitely big um having said that like the best is incredible and then the lows are like mm-hmm. almost negligible like it, it, it and it, yeah. and it feels revisionist to be like well we don't count these songs these songs are just like weird songs yeah. i don't know what happened there i feel that way about um i don't want to live forever the song from the 50 shades uh-huh. darker soundtrack because <laughs> it's just like this is oh this is not good i don't know why we have to put up with this at all um yeah. it's not not great um and then there are other songs that they're not bad but given where she ends up going they somehow feel like almost too basic given her her whole range and i'm thinking here like mm. you know sad beautiful tragic which is a song that i yes. now love but i didn't you know at first i didn't love it and it's like funny enough you know we talked about guitar playing i was gonna go reach for my guitar which is right over there it was one of the first songs that i learned how to play um oh. because i'm just now learning how to play guitar and sad beautiful tragic is just like a very simple song to play that's like i don't know if, you know i don't know if we need to rhyme magic with tragic i don't know if we need to like live <laughs> through this um and so, I don't know, it's fine. It's fine that it exists. It's not, you know, it's not indefensible. It's just like, mm-hmm. we've gone so far in terms of where this career has gone that it's like, this is not important and I will choose to not define you by this. Yeah, I will say, I know who the audience for me is because me is the most like kind of Toronto's best adult contemporary radio. <laughs> um, my 66-year-old mother loves that song so there you go but have you asked her why because it's got like a lot of repetition and a lot uh, again we talk about like that schoolyard chant kind of scheme of melody Uh, like that's it's designed to just earworm um it did its job in that way yeah the way i would describe range is if her best is an a plus and i fully believe that her best is an a plus um then i would say her worst is somewhere to a c to a c plus i think that's true i don't i don't think there's anything she's done that's offensively bad besides look what you made me do and better than revenge um and even then i can't say that those like Look what you made me do. It sounds weird now, but there were a lot of songs that sounded like that um, when it was released. So I can't even really say like, what the hell was that? Um, but uh, yeah, like you her- can, you're allowed to. You're absolutely still within that context. I like to be like, oh, that was still like, okay, what are we doing here? Yeah, that is that is my Krusty the Clown. What the hell was that moment? And, but, and can um, I say that like that some of those some of those choices for first singles have later been proven right, right? You know what I mean? Like the when when she put out "Shake It Off" first from Red, it was like mm-hmm. this is not what I want out of Taylor Swift. This is not the See, job that Taylor actually, Swift is supposed to do. But then that when song "Shake It Off" came so out. Well. I was like, yeah. Were you, when were when you "Shake in? It Off" came out, I don't want to say I was a believer, but I was like. This is really, really fun. And of all the other things that I couldn't get into, I was like, this actually makes me like pop music. This is exactly what pop music should be. I love 
I love use of horns, casual use of horns and brass in in pop music yeah. because I'm a brass player. Like that's. But wait, um, so and, wait, I yeah. I misspoke there because like Shake It Off is a Shake It Off is 1989 and it's so unlike the rest of 1989. Like that's supposed true. to be like this big coming out of I'm going to mm-hmm. venture into the pop space. Here I go. Um, I guess sorry that the first single for for Red was We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together, and even that with the wee and like the people thought was like that was like a little bit like grating and too much. It's like what are we doing? Why are you like this right now? Um, she's it, having yeah. like, consistently first single is like whoa, what is this? We are never ever getting back together. I remember the year that it came out. I had to. I was working in a school, and I had to choreograph like a grade nine musical theater number to that. <laughs> and even then, it was like that. Their 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 costume was they were wearing pajamas, and it was like a sleepover party kind of thing. I'm like, this is exactly what it is. It's a sleepover party song. That's um, perfect. That's such yeah. a perfect sort of representation of that song. That's good. Yeah. So we have reached the end that about does it for this episode of Peak Show. So thank you so much, Elamine, for coming and talking Taylor with me. Before we let you go, tell everyone again where they can find you, follow you, and your various projects. Uh, I am perhaps too frequently on Twitter. Um, Twitter, my Twitter is Elamine88, spelled E-L-A-M-I-N-8-8. Um, uh, I will tweet too much. I'm very sorry about that. Most of them are bad tweets. I'm sorry about that also. Uh, my book comes out in May. My book comes out May 18th. Feel free to pre-order. But also if you're like, I want to pre-order. I want to go to a bookstore on May 19th and buy it. That's also fine with me. That's not a problem. Um, I host a pop culture show called Pop Chat for the CBC. We drop episodes once a week. Uh, come through. Come through wherever, man. Let's have a chat. Awesome. As for me, I've been your host, Bree Rohde, and I'm so happy to be back with this season of Peak Show. We got some stellar guests coming up, and we've got so much more great content episodes on David Fincher, The Babysitter's Club, Coen Brothers, a whole month of Star Wars discourse, if I'm ready for that. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at Breganism, which is like veganism with a B-R-E-E, and you can also follow this podcast, Peak Show, at Peak Show Pod on Twitter. Don't forget to rate and review us on Spotify, as well as Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars or go to Special thanks to Jared Daly, that's my husband, for our show logo and all its art. And thanks to Jack Dunn for writing our original theme music. Most of all, thank you for listening. I've been Bree Rohde, and you know when it's time to go. We did it! And while that happened, one of my sound panels fell off. (laughs) 